This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by Texture. Texture is the app that gives you an all-access pass to the world's best magazines right on your phone or tablet. Texture is offering our listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash vulture. Even better, give Texture as a gift between now and December 31st. Try Texture for free when you go to texture.com slash vulture. Have you heard the message? An original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. All of season one is available now. So listen and find out why a 70-year-old alien recording seems to be killing people. Search for The Message on iTunes. Experience the most delicious, entertaining, and bizarre parts of life in the big city with New York Magazine's collection of podcasts, available exclusively from Panoply. Tune into the Grub Street podcast for restaurant trends that'll soon be sweeping the country. Catch exclusive interviews with the stars of your favorite TV shows with the Vulture TV podcast. And check out Sex Lives for intimate discussions of sex in the real city. It's like taking a trip to New York from the comfort of your earbuds. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazelle Amami. On this week's show, we'll talk about HBO's The Leftovers, which aired its season two finale and possibly final episode ever on Sunday. Plus, we'll take a question from one of our listeners on how to best watch Battlestar Galactica. I always tell people to go through the Resurrection Ship Part 2 and then stop there, never turn back. If you don't listen to that advice, you most likely will regret it later or you have bad taste. That's all coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. We'll be doing a special listener mailbag show in a couple weeks, so send us your questions about TV in 2015, your hopes for 2016, or anything else you'd like to hear us talk about. Hi, Matt and Margaret. (laughs) So let's talk about The Leftovers. Okay. (laughs) It aired, as I just said, it's possibly final episode because we don't know yet if the show will be picked up for a third season. And we wanted to revisit the show because this might be our last chance to. Oh, I hope not. I hope not, too. I hope so. But but not because I didn't love it. Because I actually, to my tremendous surprise, loved this season. I just think that this is a good ending point. And the last thing I want is to watch it backslide or get shitty. It was definitely a beautiful note to end on if it is a finale. Yeah. If it is a series finale. That's true, although I think ideally you should be able to say that about any show, that like the season finale could be a series finale, and a lot of, and a lot of people like actually do write them that way. I want a third season. Yeah. I really want a third season. I think there's more to explore, and, and I think given the subject matter, they can continue to move forward with it because the whole idea of this thing is, moving, is about moving forward. Yeah, and I think they could do what they did this season, which is like a quasi-reboot in a new location, although... I think based on what happened in Sunday night, we do kind of need to see what plays out in Jarden with the Guilty Remnant entering, or at least the finale set it up that way. But there was a little talk of the show potentially moving to Australia if it were to get a third season. Which is an interesting idea. Yeah. And there's a lot of developments that could be explored that I would, I would be curious to see explored, um, <clears throat> like uh, Kevin. What is the deal with Kevin now? 
You know, we need to talk about Kevin. We do. Is he Jesus? He's a shaman. We spoke to Reza Aslan, who said that now that he's become a true shaman by dying, which is the process a shaman needs to undergo in order to truly become a shaman, what happens is they often undergo personality changes where they become just completely different people. And that could be really interesting to explore with Kevin. He did seem a lot calmer, you know, after his karaoke experience. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. The Kevin Garvey karaoke experience is a good band name. So good. That, can we talk about that? Oh my God. I have a, we have a clip here of Justin Thoreau singing Homeward Bound. And and, and if you're prone to, like, if, (laughs) if other people crying makes you cry, Gather ye tissues yeah. <laughs> because you will be ruined by this. Tonight I'll sing my songs again. I'll play the game and pretend. Mm-hmm. All my words come back to me in shades of mediocrity, like emptiness in harmony. I need someone to comfort me. Homeward bound. I wish I was homeward bound Home where my thoughts escaping Home where my music's playing Home where my love lies waiting silently for me Silently for me in general, I think there needs to be more singing on television. <laughs> Generally, uh, yeah, I'm not, I don't. I'm not averse to that. I like this in particular because it was just so uncanny in the Freudian sense. I mean, everything about it, everything about this episode. There have been three episodes this year that I felt like, and there are long stretches of other episodes. This is true, of, but whole episodes. The one with uh, Matt and Mary trying to find their way back into town. That was amazing. Um, the International Assassin episode, and then the finale, and all three of these got so close to the condition of dreaming for me mm-hmm. that there was actually a moment, and I'm, I'm serious about this, there were a couple of moments during the finale where I asked, I had to ask myself, I was so into it, it was like, am I watching this or am I having a dream about it? And I haven't actually watched it yet. And it was like Matt's perched. Matt's lost his mind. It really, but it's, seriously, it's like perched on the edge. It's got that lucid dreaming feeling yeah. where you're having a dream and you know that you're having a dream and you're sort of observing yourself having the dream. And you're and you're aware of things that are correct according to real real world logic, and things that are that have been removed or or uh, disregarded. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Going back to that karaoke scene, it reminded me of this scene from Gilmore Girls. In the yeah, final me season. too. Yeah, when Lorelai sings "I Will Always Love You." Yeah, that's one of my favorite Lauren Graham moments. Because yeah. uh, what's weird is it's in season seven of Gilmore Girls, mm-hmm. which is usually maligned because it does not include the Sherman Palladinos. Um, but Lorelai sings. I will always love you. And she says she's like ostensibly singing it to her daughter because like her daughter is going to leave town. Um, She's graduated. Yeah, she graduated from college. She's going to go on the campaign trail as a journalist. Uh, And then Luke walks in and and he hears her singing it. And she does Lauren Graham. This is like the best moment of acting, like maybe ever on anything. She does this little like shrug thing where she's like getting choked up and she's singing and she sings like in life sings pretty well. Mm -hmm. So you can tell she's sort of taking down her actual like musical chops a little bit. And then she just like has this little cry shrug and it's like just the best that is like the high watermark to me so i thought homeward bound was excellent (laughs) maybe like i mean it's doing obviously very different work well you know apparently they were originally going to go with like a prayer hmm. 
and they couldn't get the rights to it. But I'm so <laughs> glad they couldn't because Homeward Bound just seems like the perfect. Well, song. that makes That's a, great. I mean, yeah. I also think that shot where they show the cigarettes in magazines. Um, yes. I part of me was torn because I was like, ooh, I would like to have thought of that myself. <laughs> Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. oh, that's a good sort of day after Easter egg kind of thing. Um, but I did like that made me think about how the show was deciding to tell what it wanted to tell. And that to me was such a like, you know what, let's give some of this more up. Like, let's be a little bit more forthcoming with with some of these ideas. So well, I, I and thought, also I felt like, you know, going back to the shaman idea, those cutaways to me were almost like a breadcrumb trail that was going to enable him to return. Like that was mm-hmm. the purpose of singing that song was an incantation. And the and the images that he saw that hooked up with the lyrics were things that led the way back to mm-hmm. the quote unquote real world. And it was just beautifully shot and so tender and like I don't know. I that's I the best. That's probably that. the best four minutes of his career as an actor. Yeah, I mean that is transcendently great. That 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 whole sequence. And he's been great the whole season. He was my number one on my list of my favorite performances this year, and in large part because he's such an invisible performer. There are a lot of actors on TV that I love who are being big in mm-hmm. to one degree or another. And he is this guy who, you know, because he is so fucking handsome, and I can, you know, saying that is like saying the sun, you know, gee, the sun is warm. He could just stand there and not be an actor at all, yeah. and probably the camera would find something interesting about him, but he's a really good actor. He's a beautiful crier, too. And he is, and, and, and nothing he does <laughs> seems forced. I never feel like yeah. he's forcing anything, and everything seems to sort of just be pulled out of him. It's really amazing. And this episode was a great example of that. And it takes a special kind of skill as an actor to be in a situation that is basically a dream. And I'm sure David Lynch's actors and Thoreau has been Mm -hmm. in a Lynch film have been through this. But how do you make emotional sense out of something that doesn't make narrative sense? This scene reminded me of True Detective season two, although... Although, boy, was it better. And and, (laughs) sure, no. So, like, part of me wanted to, like, hatch this theory that this episode was, like, a huge F you to a bunch of people, right? Because we have Erica being like, open that fucking box. And it was like, ooh, suck a dick, J.J. Abrams in your mystery box. (laughs) There was just, like, a little bit... Like, I think if you're a fan of Damon Lindelof's work, you can't not think of J.J. Abrams' mystery box in that moment. Like, that to me is just, like, such a shout-out or anti-shout-out. Or whatever. Well, also, how this this episode ends feels like kind of like the ending of Lost. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, uh, but but, but way better. better right? <laughs> and so so in that moment when he's at the bar, I was like, oh, there's that other there's, and I I mean, look, I thought season two of True Detective was a dumpster fire, but but we had one of the very very good moments in True Detective season two was that dream sequence when he sees his dad and we're at the mm-hmm. bar and we mm-hmm. hear the singing, and this obviously had like like similar aesthetic similar tone sort of well but um, i think they're both like you know sure I, like worshiping at the altar of david lynch completely, obviously mm-hmm. totally which is fine sure it's hey you yeah. gotta worship something might as well be that yes but i thought this season was so beautiful and it covered so much ground and i think sort of like kevin's like shamanic rebirth is interesting but i also because we've seen so many other examples of people who either claim to or actually have Uh, sort of like supernatural capabilities and are able to read or understand things about the world that are not obvious or unable to be seen by sort of lay people. I don't, like, like, are we going to watch Kevin, like, help other people, like, take peyote and and experience, like, their own (laughs) journeys and stuff? Because, like, I, like, I'm actually just not super interested in that. And at this point, we've seen Kevin die three times we saw him put on his mapleton uniform again like you know he's back in the hotel he gets to choose his outfit again right um 
So in terms of uncanniness, uh, in the Freudian sense, the sense of return, right? So we've mm-hmm. had him, we've had a lot of returns on this season. This whole yes. season has been like looping and looping and looping. The first three episodes take place in the same amount of time, mm-hmm. right? Like, like it's the same day, basically. In right. Three... And we return to that day at the end. And yeah, I mean, we've had like, we're, we're looping and we're returning in the it. home, but not my home. I've And wandered. pieces of music that recur. Yeah, I've wandered and I yeah. thought I was taking a different route and here I am back again walking the same path I, I was bound. attending to avoid. Mm-hmm. I guess I just think like this is a perfect ending and I can't imagine how you could get a more complete sense of finality than this. And I feel like just Deciding to spread out further is the exact opposite of what I want for this show. It's like, oh, what will happen when the guilty remnant takes over? It's like, well, what happened when they were in Mapleton? Like, we already saw that. And the truth is that, like, the one of the best things about this season was the lack of guilty remnant. They're, like, they're existence still being part of the show's world but like well, I, Mo Ryan said in her variety thing like them sitting around writing notes doesn't do it for me and it doesn't do it for me either well I do wish regardless <laughs> of whether it gets another season that this season had been longer because I felt like it kind of like Meg and Tom and that whole narrative wasn't really mm-hmm. explored much and then all of a sudden it it's used to push the plot forward right. in order to have this big climactic ending that Maybe wasn't necessary in terms of, like, delivering the emotional weight. You know, it didn't need to be this huge thing that they were coming to do and taking over the town. And, like, if you did want to have that happen, I think you needed to have a little more time with what was going on in Mapleton in order to have it. I don't know. I just would have liked a 13-episode season, say. Yeah, you may you may be right about that. Um, I was happy with pretty much all of it, even the parts that I thought were questionable. Uh, eventually, justified themselves, like you know the whole idea of Patty basically being this apparition that's following Kevin around. Like at first, I was like, "Oh shit, here we go again with Mr. Robot." Yeah, you know? and uh, I didn't like that about Mr. Robot. And interestingly, that both Mr. Robot and the Leftovers use that <clears throat> pixie song that's used in Fight oh, yeah. Club. <laughs> But Leftovers, it's much cleverer. It's a great rope-a-dope kind of use of that song. It's the first time you hear it, like, oh, what a cliche to use that song. But then they bring it back in the acoustic version twice. Well, the music use has been so good this season. It's very sophisticated. Their selections, and I've noticed they've used the score a lot less than in the first season. But then when they did use it in the finale, it was just blubbering. Yeah. (laughs) It's just like they use it so perfectly at the right moments. I will also say my, like, weird obsession this season has been with, like, the town anthem that we first see in the season premiere where Evie's singing it at her school. Yes, yes. Um, and then we see it again. They sing it at church in uh, the episode where Matt like sort of leaves Jarden. And then we see it in this episode where Meg sort of menacingly sings it. And like as somebody who grew up in every possible like chorus you could join, like school, area L state, like Nisma shit, like all of that stuff. Like this is the most... Like, they nailed exactly that goofy chorus yes. song style. <laughs> yes. And, like, the, the weird, like, oh, this is the 6-8 measure where everything is well, It's different. like the organist like, at the church wrote this in 1926, <laughs> and it's always been sung. It yeah. sounds like one of those pieces that is a tradition, not because it's a great song, but because it's always been performed. Sure. And it's a relatively easy song like to a do. Fight, like a football fight song or something. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, that doesn't even rhyme. What the hell? So I think, like, their sort of ear for motif this season was more refined than in season one. Oh, I it was un- uncanny, and it was... It was part of the it was part of the genius of the structural patterning of the story like it was embedded in it in a really organic way and we keep coming back to lost obviously we would because Damon Lindelof was involved with lost but 
this to me a little feels more than like, involved with Lost. I know, but just <laughs> okay. bear with me here. It, it to me this feels like a pared down, cleaner version of Lost that has more breathing space. And the way the story is told, particularly in season two, is incredibly Lost-like in the way that we alternate between these ensemble sort of episodes and these almost self-contained, single-character-driven short stories mm-hmm. that reveal something that we didn't already know about the characters or that put that end with them in a completely different narrative position. And also just the whole, you know, the mystery box aspect of it. I love the fact that this is a show that I feel 100% confident is not going to feel the need to explain anything. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the fact that it doesn't explain exactly what things are, that we always get right up to the edge of an explanation, but it always leaves a little something for us. Like, what is the nature of Kevin's ability to return and return and return? Well, yes, you know, we know that it's it's an element of, of shamanistic experience, and then it's it's of a piece with this idea of the, the return of the repressed, but also reincarnation and all of that stuff. But there's not like you can sit there and just like map it out like like it's a list of things. You know, mm-hmm. and, like, again, dreamlike. And, yeah, I think that definitely hasn't been the focus. And one person's story I've loved this season is Nora's arc because mm-hmm. you've really gotten to see her a lot and her anxieties and how she's figuring out how to get her life back. And in this finale, you you see her listening to the radio and kind of maybe doubting whether she has this baby for the right reasons is the kind of sense I got. And then her having to fight to get her baby back once it's stolen and that scene of her like every every character I loved got a moment that kind of just blew me they blew me away with their acting and hers was running running towards the bridge and mm-hmm. trying to get her baby and this kind of that th- was some silent movie shit uh, well, amazing. That, and that also was the cave of, woman again right yes, I mean the right. shot of Lily from above is exactly I mean if not exactly pretty close to the shot from from the season premiere mm-hmm. of the cave woman sort of setting her baby down and yes absolutely yeah and kind and of I this... think it's the same director even Ooh. oh is it Mimi letter, Mimi letter yeah, yeah. Nice. that's right yeah and this this sense of being deserving of love and you feel like she feels like she deserves it and you get that with Kevin too where they outright say it he's like I deserve I deserve to be loved and this these more positive life affirming themes that I think you mentioned in your piece Margaret that I feel like all season we've just been deprived of and then all of a sudden it's like this catharsis for the characters that felt really really satisfying what I really found interesting about the the sort of last action of the Nora story in this episode I expected her to scream and be like somebody like that lady took my baby and for you know to be like she's adopted not that it's any of your business right but like uh, and to have to like to be asking more people to stop what they're doing and to watch out or whatever and we don't see that at all and I thought it was really interesting the way that like Nora sort of clicks into action is you know you have to imagine that when her her family had departed that she had done the sort of like lamenting and wailing and stuff and this time she was like no I have to get shit done and you could see her in her panic in her despair also be extremely active and that I think is the big shift for season two versus season one is action occurring and our characters feeling not just empowered to but obligated to move sometimes literally to Texas but also to like take a bigger more determinant role in what happens in their lives I think that's what happens with Lori we see her in like paralysis, it's certainly what happens with Meg. We see everyone so paralyzed, and in mm-hmm. um, Mary's case, I guess, literally mm-hmm. paralyzed. Uh, right. And then we see the sort of dismantling of that paralysis, and, and we see everyone in his or her own way 
decide to be something and, and she do pe- something. And she is she is literally physically paralyzed. And her husband, at the end of that No Room at the End episode, chooses a kind of paralysis by placing himself in the stocks. Mm-hmm. And there's an emotional paralysis implied in the way that he keeps doing the same rituals over and over and playing that same song over and over. And in the finale, that song is interrupted. Mm-hmm. You know, it's simply cut off. It's like we can't we can't listen to this song anymore. We right. also know that Jarden itself has experienced, I guess, sort of paralysis because everyone dis- like we know that lady put on the wedding dress and she wears it every day. And that guy kills that goat every time. And and because they don't understand or know how or why Jarden was spared everyone is is sort of trapped and and I thought I thought the Meg flashback to explain sort of her initial visit there was really interesting. I thought her encounter with Evie was like a real aha stuff. And in terms yeah. of the show not explaining stuff, I was never really bothered by the show not explaining the departure. I think that's the fucking premise of the show. Yeah. Right. But the truth is that this season introduced a mystery, where do these girls go? And then just solved it in like a very clear, decisive way. And so the idea, like, this is a show that doesn't give us answers. It's like, uh, yes, it does. <laughs> it gives us tons of answers. And I think to your idea that, like, oh, we don't need to know the, like, nuts and bolts and there's not really a structure there. I actually think there is a structure there. And that's what gives me, like, a sense of trepidation about moving forward is because I think when we, you know, in, in Gazelle, in her interview with uh, Aslan, I think in Damon Lindelof's many interviews it, during and leading up to and following the season there has been a lot of stuff of like okay well this is what an axis mundi is and this is what this is and this is what water is and we see this thing happen and this thing happen and that means that and it's like oh wow okay that's great but like that is not like like okay so then now, now we have all of these big ideas and those are not about character they're not about emotion they're about foundations that's well, they fine, are, but, but but they would say the fa- as for the idea of a foundation you know the foundation of a building is something you never see you feel that it's there, but you don't see the foundation of a building. It's underneath it. And I feel like all of those things that you're talking about are the foundation. And that's why I love this show so much is I believe that there's a foundation there. I believe that they probably worked out a fairly detailed cosmology, like a whole system. They probably got flow charts out the wazoo in the writer's room explaining what everything means, what everything is, and maybe where eventually everything is leading. But I trust them not to show us that foundation. That, to me, is what makes a show so special, and that's why I trust it in a way that I didn't trust Lost. Because, you know, when you make a show like this, if you have any sort of emotional connection with the audience at all, if they're really into it, they're naturally going to be begging you, explain this, explain that, explain this other thing. Please explain what this means. What did that mean? Can we get a Vox explainer on this? What the fuck? You know, what's going on? And it takes tremendous willpower to resist the temptation to give the audience that thing. But if you don't give the audience that thing, then you're you're left with the basics, like, you know, the emotions and the larger meanings. And that, you know, that opening song of the second season has that refrain, let the mystery be. I don't believe they would have put that song in there if they didn't intend to practice what they're preaching. But the only mystery they're letting be is what caused the departure, right? Because all the other mysteries on the show have been addressed or are at least like on the table to be addressed, right? I mean... Yeah, well, the individual bits and pieces of certain actions are, but also I've never gotten the impression that they are elucidating a set of marching orders for any particular character's actions in the way that Lost did. They're more just meant to be figurative, metaphorical themes that run through the show that... I don't think we're getting answers to. We're just... I mean, Bible stories have rules, too. Right. Like, if you do this, this will happen. If you don't do it, you know, woe betide your village, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's the level of explanation that we're operating at on this show. I guess as long as we're going to talk about Bible stories, that's why I really do feel like this is the finale. Because 
Job is sort of the obvious parallel for this show, although it's not the only parallel for this show. And you know, I think people forget that at the end of the book of Job, Job like comes back into riches and he has more children and his farm, like he ha- he gets a life back. And it's not right. It's, it doesn't end with him being bereft. It ends with him having sort of proven his worthiness and getting his, you know, more or less happy ending. That's what we got. The lame walk and the deaf hear and the, the dead have risen. Like, there's nothing else. Like, we've got it. And I'm not saying I think the show's bad. I thought this season was really, like, miraculously good. But, God, if there's anything we can learn from laws, like, call it a day. Like, the last thing I want is, is you know... The show was already very close to repeating itself. And in fact, it repeated itself a lot. And I think we were teetering on the edge of too much. Mm. We didn't quite cross to that, but we were close. If in 10 episodes, we've covered, on the one hand, a ton of ground and like some literal physical ground has erupted and we've had the earthquakes and we've had the rising of civilizations and then their downfall and stuff. We've covered that. And yet we still had to do the same scene a bunch of times, we're out of juice. <laughs> like, Let, we're out. Well, but There's everything that. you're saying, you could also say about Mad Men. Let's There's a lot it, yeah. of shows you could say that about. And I just say, you know, what we're arguing here, I think, is ultimately a gut feeling about when to quit. And I just think there's more story. I think there's more story. And I don't think we've reached the end of the story of Joe by your own account. Let's all revisit this in a year after the third season <laughs> of The Leftovers airs. <laughs> just say, look, do I wish there was more Enlightened? Yes, I do. And I think if Leftovers joins Enlightened in the great HBO two-season canon, there are worse kinds of company to keep. I also think, you know, I believe in like a, a bonsai model that things can be tiny and perfect and beautiful and that is their full shape and they are destined to be tiny and perfect and beautiful in that small way forever and and the measure of a show is not its longevity the measure of a show is its density and I think we hit that for the left I want more enlightened (laughs) (laughs) I love enlightened I would yeah but I I I would have loved to have seen a a third season enlightened I'd like to see a third season leftovers if they have stories to tell and we'll never know if they don't tell it but I also think like as sad, as a big a bummer as it is, you still like. Do you look at enlightened and feel robbed? I look at enlightened and feel grateful. I feel, well, I feel robbed and grateful. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It does have to be one or the other. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. HBO executive, if you're listening to this, don't listen to Margaret. Give it a third season. Oh, seconded. <laughs> Sorry, Margaret. Coming up, we have a question from one of our listeners about Battlestar Galactica, which Margaret and Matt will answer. But first, a word from our sponsors. This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by Texture. Texture is the app that gives you an all-access pass to the world's best magazines right on your phone or tablet. Browse hundreds of magazines and cherry-pick the articles that interest you most. The Texture editorial team recommends stories for you daily, plus their curated collections let you dive deeper into topics. Sign up for Texture right now and in mere seconds gain insider access to the very best reads plus exclusive content. Between now and December 31st, you can also give Texture as a gift. With full access to the top magazines across just about every interest, Texture is the one present they'll open again and again. And here's the best part. Texture is offering our listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash vulture. Think about that. You'll gain unrestricted access to the world's best magazines, from back issues to the one on newsstands today. Order this fantastic gift for your loved one before December 31st. Try Texture for free right now when you go to texture.com slash vulture. Today's show is brought to you by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. 
I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. Search for The Message on iTunes. Uh, you guys have a great podcast. Uh, I was glad that Matt acknowledged at the beginning of the BFG discussion that the show did go off the rails. I also recommend the show to people, but in a very specific way, which is to say that it's a season and a half, roughly, of fantastic television and a few later episodes that are good but are not worth watching overall as they spoil the greatness of the beginning so i always tell people to go through the resurrection ship part two and then stop there never turn back if you don't listen to that advice you most likely will regret it later or you have bad taste thanks harsh how do you feel about that (laughs) i know that i'm in the minority of thinking that bsg didn't like turn to shit like i think a lot of people feel that it really got terrible and i i don't think it got terrible i don't either like i understand the feeling of like oh it never quite achieved the heights that it achieved earlier in its run i think that's probably fair that said like i do think there are some really excellent episodes late in the show and i also think it's I try not to tell people they have bad taste unless that the things that they consume are actively harmful. <laughs> right? It's so like something if somebody yeah. was like, no, 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 um, two broke girls. It's like, no, I think that show is like actively harmful to society. It perpetuates like racist tropes. It's homophobic. It's transphobic. It's misogynistic. In addition to being like profoundly unfunny. Like, I think like, that's an argument I'm willing to have. Right. Liking like less good episodes of Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, that's a year. That's rise a, to that level. That's a year. Mi- that's a year mileage may vary <laughs> yeah. sort of situation. And also I just and we've talked about this many times I, and I feel like we're kind of on the same page about this, but I'm not. I don't really watch a show hoping, expecting, needing them to stick the landing every single week. That's that's not really a deal breaker for me. And I love it when a show is just pretty much nailing it week after week and year after year. But there aren't too many shows like that. And and there are a lot of shows that start out very strong. And then they kind of uh, spin off and they become intermittently interesting for a while. In fact, I was just revisiting The West Wing, which is a great example of that, where I think the first, you know, two and a half seasons maybe are really solid pretty much all the way through. And then they run, they ran into some production problems, some ego problems, and some mission statement problems. And then you get great episodes towards the end, but a lot of things where you just kind of like, why am I still watching this? I think we lose density as shows go on. And I think what's challenging about loving a show that comes out of the gate really strong is that, you know, if you have something like 13 perfect episodes, or, you know, perfect, really like substantive, excellent episodes in a row. Oftentimes, for example, if a season gets extended, so Battlestar Galactica had relatively short first and second seasons and much longer third and fourth seasons. Right. You know, I think expecting a show to bat a thousand as it's 
seasons grow is a losing proposition. But I think, you know, after you come out of the gate so strong, then we maybe still have a lot of really strong episodes. And the frustrating thing is when there's episodes in between those high highs that are less good. And and suddenly it feels like, oh, the show is losing ground. And the truth is that, you know, the early examples were just not representative. Well, and there's also this this there's a couple of related problems to that I would I would add. One is that when a when a group of people begin a show, they usually have been thinking about the show for a year, two years, five years, however long, maybe their entire lives, and they have the beginning of it really formed, like really it's really mapped out in a detailed way in their imaginations and they work out whatever kinks exist as they as they write those episodes and then the deeper they get into it, the more I, I liken it to the show is a is a is a locomotive and the scripts are the track and they go into it with a certain amount of track already laid and they know that the train is fine up until we get to this point and then we're going to have to build more track and once you get into the later seasons you're desperately building track as the train is moving forward and is it any wonder especially when you got a run of you know 18 or or 22 episodes or more that you get some bummers i also think there were some cast shakeups like a couple People in like secondary and tertiary roles wind up getting cast on other shows. I'm thinking specifically of Billy getting a spoiler alert, yeah. <laughs> making an exit. Uh, you know, and so things that maybe you would have hoped, to, like like arcs that you would have expected certain characters to to complete, like those don't go the way that that the creators or writers expected either because you know contracts are contracts and and people have to kind of go where the work is so yes. i think like sometimes that winds up being clear especially on shows that run for a long time there was another issue too which was budget related which is that sure. was that was the most expensive show actively in production at sci-fi at the time and part of the original plan was to tell stories elsewhere in the fleet and once they crunched the numbers, they realized that they just couldn't afford to do that. They couldn't be afford to building these, you know, these detailed, in some cases, massive interiors of other ships in the fleet because they want to tell a story that's set there, which means they had to sort of throw all these great ideas out the window or readapt them so that they took place on the Galactica or on, you know, the handful of planets that they visited. When I tell people to watch Battlestar Galactica, I insist they start with the miniseries, which I think sometimes people either forget to watch or, or aren't sure if they need. You definitely do need the miniseries. That's series. a beautiful piece. That, oh, my gosh. Just, in and of itself, I think that's one of the great TV movies that I've ever seen. I remember being completely blown away. I was a very reluctant BSG watcher. I only watched it. My boss made me in, in a nice way. He was like, I really think we should be covering this. And I was like, oh, no. And he was like, I'll make you a deal. I'll watch a show you think I'll like if you watch BSG. And if you don't like it, you don't have to write about it. And if I don't like the show that you recommended, I promise I won't complain. And I was like, okay, deal. And I gave him Veronica Mars and he gave me Battlestar Galactica. And we were both much happier for it. Um, <laughs> so, but I remember being like, man, he doesn't know what he's, you know, And then being like, this is my favorite show. I do usually say watch it all the way through. Look, if you run out of juice, like stop. You know, the TV police are not coming. I also, <laughs> I wanted to know everything. Like I wanted to get to that finale. I wanted to see that all of those stories through. I certainly wanted to see sort of the what the end game was for Rosalind in particular. Yeah. You know, because she has a terminal illness through the entire series. And, and I was curious how they were going to, if they were going to, what that kind of conclusion was going to look like. I understand, like, people not liking the finale, I get it. I totally get it. I don't think it's as egregious as other finales, you know? <laughs> One of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently, especially as I feel like we're watching the sort of ends of a lot of significant shows, is 
the sort of modern construct of ending a great series because mm-hmm. a lot of really great shows wore out their welcome. I'm thinking of NYPD Blue, for example. Right. I think that the early parts of that show and and oh, the early and mostly later parts of that show are fantastic. But then there's just like at least one, maybe two seasons too many. We just yeah. kind of are like running on fumes. It's like, oh, there's a, there's a, there's these new people. Don't you like them? And you're like, yeah. not that much. Or, you know, Homicide, which I feel like had some of, I think, the best episodes television has ever had. And then even the run out there, too, feeling a little bit like, oh, you know, some of these stories have ended and, and we're just trying to, we're inventing more stuff, but it doesn't feel necessary or ER, right? Same thing. We have a yes. lot of shows that were excellent, had periods of less excellence, and then kind of just scooted off to the end. And shows like Mad Men or Breaking Bad or The Sopranos, that's not the case there. I think The Shield sort of ushered in the modern era of uh, perfect finale. And I still think The Shield's finale is maybe the best series finale of all time. It's up there. It's so surprising in light of what people maybe expected. I just remember being agog. Yeah. Um, And every time I've returned to it, finding it to be even have to for it to have like grown in my esteem because I've watched so many other shows that have had excellent runs not end in a way that felt as satisfying ending a story is really hard and that's a different thing than telling a story and it's a different thing than creating the story and one of the things I think tv sort of broadly speaking is still kind of coming to terms with so we figured out how to make much bigger TV. And we figured out how to make much more artful TV. And and we're telling different kinds of stories. And we're having this like really interesting era of what kinds of stories are becoming shows. But we're still not that good at the end of that and ending these stories and figuring out how big is a big show and how many episodes does that entail and who can die off and the show will still feel real and how do you end something without everyone dying off so it doesn't feel incomplete and kind of like all of these bigger ideas of like what constitutes television storytelling and we're still dancing around it and I think in 10 years we'll have a much clearer idea of what this era basically entailed in terms of advancing the art form of television yeah the more I think about TV right now the more I'm inclined to give bad endings more of a pass because I think as like a fundamental thing about television we're just not that good at it yet I feel like it's mm-hmm. the renaissance babe like the sort of you know, like really old paintings of babies, they're just like tiny shrunken adults. And it's like, that's not what a baby looks like. <laughs> right. well, we and, just like didn't paint them right yet. We well, painting, is, there. painting is is something that, you know, I, I always reach for metaphors and visual arts. But like I think of this phase as this phase of television storytelling as it's visual art. And we have an, we have finally discovered three point perspective. Yeah. You know, which isn't to say that anything that was made before the invention of three point perspective is inherently worthless, but just that we have more depth in every sense. Mm-hmm. And and uh, as far as your you know your discussion of endings, I've been thinking recently that maybe ending is the wrong word. That maybe maybe, and this, this sounds so corny, but you don't end a television show. We don't end our relationship with a television show. A movie has an ending. A novel has an ending. A poem has an ending. I don't think television shows have an ending in quite that way. What they have is a leaving. Like where are we going to leave the show? And I think the implication is that the world that they have created, unless you end with a nuclear explosion that destroys (laughs) the Earth, the implication is that the story will continue and you're not there to watch it, just as it was presumably going on before you joined the story. And so what matters then is that, as I said in a a recap of a Mad Men episode, it's the final note. It's the final note and how it sustains that's important. And and for me, one of the best examples of that is um, Cheers. 
Cheers ends more or less as it as it began, really, and there's no indication that anything has irrevocably, catastrophically changed. Like like nothing really big has happened in that world, although people's lives have progressed. It's just the sense of he says we're closed, and that's it. And and I like. I like the idea of leaving a show, and sometimes the the leaving is very peaceful, as I think the ending of Mad Men was, and sometimes it's wrenchingly violent, and the end of The Sopranos, I think that's why people continue to insist, well, Tony got shot, because it felt like we got shot in that ending, like like suddenly we just weren't allowed to watch the show anymore. They took it away from us, like in the middle of a song lyric, you know? And and so that's, I'm trying to be, it sounds like maybe I'm cutting television shows too much of a break, and maybe I am, but... It's really, really, really hard to end something that doesn't feel like a self-contained thing anyway. I you guess know? I like do I feel like I'm... it's something inimical to the idea of, of series television when we say, say how, how are you going to end this thing? I think the difference you're pointing to is probably related to not knowing how long it will be at the outset. Right. Um, you know, you finish your novel before anyone reads your novel, but you don't finish your TV show before anyone watches your TV show. Hmm. And I think that affects a bunch of things about it. And one of those things is something I like, which is that in the lifespan of a show, ideally a show that is going to do more than one season or whatever, that there is something that happens because of it being watched. And you don't change the course of a novel having read it, but watching a show it changes what day of the week it's on because people either watched it or didn't watch it. And it might change certain plot elements because people responded or didn't respond or were confused or hated it. And not that I want shows to just be like pure fan service, but there is an interactive element there that is not true for other medium. Right. I still want shows to have good endings. I still like that is still something I prefer. And I think I'm trying to I feel like one of the things that's happened sort of the older I get. And I think the more I write about television, think about television is I'm much more forgiving in my old age than I was as when I was starting out. I think I'm a lot I feel like I'm a lot more willing to be like, that's pretty good. Or like, like well, and yeah. to see the sort of to see like the best in stuff, which I think is probably what people don't expect critics to say, but I, I certainly feel like that's happened to me. I certainly don't want a show to suck. I'd love to write raves every day. That'd yeah. be great. If I could never watch another bad show, I'd be psyched. <laughs> you know, that would be great. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think a lot about something that my friend Keith Ulick said years and years ago. We were talking about the X-Files. And this actually had a profound effect on how I watch TV, this thing they said, which was, I said, you know, the X-Files had, I would say the first... Uh, really, seasons two through four of the X-Files were pretty much perfect. Season one had a lot of great stuff in it. And they continued to produce great episodes, you know, in five, six, seven, and so on. And it did peter out. And I said there were just too many ways in which that show was damaged, interfered with. Some of the messes were their own creation. Others were handed to them from elsewhere. There were contract negotiation issues that affected the show between the actors and Chris Carter and the network. They relocated to Los Angeles, which changed the tone of the show, all these things. And then, of course, they changed the cast. Like at the end of the show, they changed the whole cast. And he said <laughs> that to him, that was all part of the drama of the show, was how is the show going to meet these challenges? Like the extra dramatic things that are happening on the show are part of the show, if you're, if you're really into the show. And it becomes a challenge that the show has to overcome. And if an actor dies, and as, say, Nancy Marchand does on The Sopranos, how does The Sopranos respond to that? I think they responded to it about as well as they possibly could have. But the death of a leading actor on a show is just kind of a different version of we've cut your episode order or this actor has gotten a, a lead role in another show and is leaving or this actor wants a 
a million dollars an episode and we decided they're not worth it so we're going to kill them off in a car wreck i mean these are all things it's and in a way it's like again to get philosophical about it it's like life like life throws things at you and the question is how do you deal with it that doesn't change the fact that sometimes a show just can't overcome those challenges and it sucks or that uh, sometimes a show just runs out of inspiration. That happens, too. Sure. But, like but, I, but I'm a little bet. more generous. I'm just saying I'm a little more generous about that stuff now that I know a bit more about how television is made. <laughs> you know. Going back just to BSG in particular, I can't imagine having jumped ship on that show. I really right. And I think, say, for West Wing or Gilmore Girls shows that I love – the way other people, I guess, love children, uh, their children. I don't have kids. Um, that, like, just, like, overwhelming, like, blinding, serious, like, love. Yeah. I also, like, I say, you know, don't watch season five of The West Wing. It's not good. Like, this is the dark time. Like, to skip over that. But as somebody who loved the show, I can't imagine getting to the end of season four and being like, well, I'm going to skip it. Like, yeah. you have to watch it anyway. And then you talk to your friends and be like, yeah, you're right. Like, season five sucks. Like, yeah, it does. I can't imagine having, like, the amount of self-control to be like, I heard it sucks and I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> like, like, you smell the milk when someone's like, does this smell bad? <laughs> right? Like, you do. You can't help it. Right. And I think for BSG, which was extremely... um I think it sort of had had a tension between how plot driven it was versus how character driven it was. And I think and how theme driven it was. Yeah. And I think that's a hard thing to juggle for anybody. But I think especially as the show sort of moved further away from character development and further into plot development in its later years, I can't imagine even if somebody was like, Margaret, I've seen the future you're not going to love the way Battlestar Galactica ends. I'd be like, I have to learn that for myself. Yes. Like, I just would not have been able to drop it. And I don't I don't think that makes me stupid or foolish. It makes me a fan of a show. And you want to see it to its conclusion. There are some shows you can jump ship on. And for me, BSG, could. I can't imagine that being on that list. Well, there are also parts of the show that people generally seem disappointed by or even actively hated. Like, you know, the entire... All that stuff on Caprica, which was, you know, very divisive for fans. And, on and New Caprica? Yeah, yeah, New Caprica. And certainly the end of the, the, the series itself was, you know, a lot of people hated it. Oh, Just yeah. actively hated it. <laughs> but one of the things that I love about Battlestar Galactica is that it does this thing that I feel is really important, and it's a distinguishing characteristic of pretty much all of the great shows, which is it it removes one or two strands of the DNA of the type of show that you think it's going to be. And it changes, it messes with your perceptions, and it leaves you uncertain of what to expect, who to sympathize with, who to root against. The Sopranos is, a, is an example of that, where, you know, you identify with this family because they're a family, and television is built around families, but they're a family that either kills people or profits from the killing of people or from other crimes. So your sympathies are automatically torn there. That inherently is more dynamic than just if it were a straightforward, they're asshole gangsters or they're a lovable suburban family. The Americans does something like that. Battlestar Galactica did that on a much grander scale because... We automatically identify with humans versus basically killer cyborgs, but the humans are uh, polytheists and the cyborgs are monotheists, which for a Western audience automatically kind of discombobulates us a little bit. And then as the show goes on, we've got this scenario where the attack on the human race is basically like a Pearl Harbor or 9-11, really purposefully so. So as American viewers, our sympathies are, are... automatically we're identifying with this fleet. We're identifying with them. We're thinking of them as the underdogs or at least the people who have to respond to a a civilization-threatening catastrophe. 
But then as the show goes on, we reveal that there are terrorists or at least uh, terrorist elements within their own ranks. And then when we get to New Caprica, they flip the script. So it's like, you know, a parable of the situation in Iraq, except now we're identifying with the insurgents. And they do that all through the show. They do that. There's like big ways and small ways it does it all through the show. And so to me, all of that stuff in the later seasons where they're really, really reaching feels all of a piece with the show. And like, does you know, almost to the point where it's like it's beyond, for me, beyond the question of does this work dramatically or not. It's like the entire thing is this laboratory and like here's the latest experiment. Yeah. One of the, and this is sort of obvious, but one of the questions in BSG, and we talk a lot about uh, great shows having big questions. Obviously, one of the questions in BSG is what is personhood? Like what constitutes a self? And the sort of cost of denying selfhood and the cost of sort of your own humanity being robbed by denying humanity to anyone else. And that's, I feel like the struggle to sort of make that show stay great in later seasons is like, yeah, that's a hard idea. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it is a hard idea. And it's one of very few shows at the time that was at all critical of torture. Yes. This is at a time when like 24 is on and people are like, it's so great. And you're like, yeah. what the fuck is happening? You know, like it's possible to be patriotic and opposed to torture. That was like not considered true, basically. Oh, it's one of the great it's one of the great popular engagements with 9-11, with the, with the post 9-11 era. I mean, I mean, I, there are very few things that even come close to it. I can't think of a single one. And considering what a political and psychological mess that period was for everybody who went through it, is it any surprise that the show would be kind of a mess, too, as it tries to grapple with all this stuff? Especially as, you know, as the show goes on, so did the war in Iraq, right? right. And, and so we had a bunch of different ideas that were coalescing in the actual culture and then a bunch of ideas coalescing within, like, the actual characters on the show, like, their culture and and those things being either in concert or in opposition and figuring out where is the most interesting story, where is the interesting tension, you know. And then if you're telling a story that is supposed to be and is designed to be revealing things about your the audience's own selves, where does your responsibility lie in terms of how that story goes forward? Yes, and keyed into that is this idea of the relationship between the civilian and the military aspects of government and how in times of war the military naturally tends to, to override civilian concerns and dismiss them as being unrealistic or soft or you know a form of appeasement or cowardice or whatever. And one of the brilliant things about Battlestar Galactica is it shows that a lot of times the military mentality will say that to the civilian mentality, not because it's true, but because the civilians are asking something of them that is contrary to their natures or simply inconvenient. So they shut them down by saying, you know, soldier man says that won't work. And and that happens time and time again on the show. And Roslyn and other people in the civilian branch have to fight against it. That's a great representation of, of some of the core issues dealing with foreign policy during that that period of world history, to the extent where I feel like if you were teaching a government class, you could probably assign some of these episodes as, as uh, discussion starters, you know, yeah. like the par- just as a parable kind of aspect. And, and also to, returning to um, Roslyn, Roslyn begins the story of Battlestar Galactica with a diagnosis of terminal cancer. And this is something that only really sort of sunk in with me when I went back and watched episodes of the show again. In a way, the, her diagnosis is the diagnosis of the human race. And by the time we get to the end of this story, the human race, as we know it on this show, has basically died out and become something else. You know, it's the, you know, they say when you die, matter changes form. 
that's what happens at the end of that show, in my opinion, is it's, you know, it changes into something else. Presumably they become us. It's like that opening narration of the original Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. You know, life here began out there, as the <laughs> yeah. guy says. And it's of a piece with the show's spiritual and religious uh, element, too. Like, that, that's one of the, the big questions that it keeps asking is, is there... Is there a world beyond what we can see? Are there forces beyond what we can sense that are that are affecting what happens to us? Is there such a thing as destiny? Is there such a thing as prophecy? What good is faith? Is there a purpose to it? Is it a lie we tell ourselves? Like these are all the things that the show is concerned with, which most television shows, most popular art isn't concerned with at all. So there, to me, there's a beautiful poetry to how the show stretches out, changes, experiments with things. Sometimes falls on its face, and I feel like in the I feel like that ending is a beautiful ending. Like it's the ending to a search more than a story, almost. Yeah, I mean, I think of Rosalind as one of my favorite characters of all time, and not just because like I does she make things like does she make decisions that I don't agree with? Of course, that's like part of the texture of the show. Yes, uh, I think to your point about the show sort of reflecting Rosalind's own thing, I agree completely. I also think it's really significant that she's a teacher, mm. and she like never wanted to be president, right? She becomes president after everyone else in the line of succession has died. And she's very low on, like, you know, she's like the That's, secretary of education. She's like, like 23rd in line yeah. or something. So, so this is, you know, this is not a story of uh, power-hungry anything. Uh, I also think it's significant in a show that where a lot of people die and people threaten one another and kill one another kind of a lot. Yeah. Um, she's one of very few characters who's freed of the fear of death. She mm. has, a like, not completely, and she's not, you know, cuckoo bananas about it, but the the threat of a violent death is not as scary to her as it is to other characters because she knows she's approaching her own death sooner rather than later in a way that other characters don't and can't know about themselves. Mm. And it, I think it changes the way that she governs and it makes her more open to hard decisions because the threat of violent retaliation means something different to her than it means to other people on the show. That's a great point. God, you guys, we love Battlestar Galactica yeah. so much. Yeah, we're, we're, we're nerds for I this I knew show. we were going to be talking about it today, and I was re-watching a couple episodes to, to sort of brush up, and I was, you know, I was like just going to like listen while I was like fluttering around, and then I wound up being like, my favorite! And I was like locked back in, and just like watching and remembering. And I was, I was really struck by how much I didn't remember for a show that I feel like I have pretty strong recall for. Um, there were a lot of additional characters that I was like, oh yeah, him. So if you haven't rewatched BSG in a while, um, it might, you know, it's not a bad thing to uh, to rewatch. There's also a, a an opposition, a general opposition among viewers and among a lot of critics to things that are messagey, where, where they're sort of taking an issue and putting it right out there and shining a spotlight on it and saying, here is what we are going to talk about now. And here's what we're going to engage with through the dramatic situations that involve our main characters. And this sort of thing is dismissed as preachy. It's dismissed as not dramatic. And I think there's a preference for what's called invisible storytelling, where the where the issues, whatever they are, are buried really, really deep in the mix. And Battlestar Galactica was not like that. Battlestar Galactica had, I think, a lot more in common with something like The Twilight Zone. It has where, a tremendous you know, amount in common with The Twilight Zone. Yeah, and, and, and it's like... A lot of the episodes of that show feel like self-contained anthology-type episodes that happen to involve the same characters, and they are about one or two particular ideas or issues, and they often have an inherent irony to them and how they play out. Oh, sure. I mean, a ton of BSG has that same Twilight Zone message of, careful what you wish for. Yes. Uh, 
in addition to obviously the strong like political and and ideological elements, there's a real like noodling about the inherent fraughtness of the human endeavor, and that yeah. basically you're always going to be the guy without his glasses, and you'll you know that, that there's <laughs> right. like, there's there's some yeah. inherent like. Well, yes, and I could think about all the struggle epi- into all of it. All the episodes of the Twilight Zone, where what you think you're looking at is not what you're looking at. Yeah, like the Eye of the Beholder, where you know that's sure. you know, which is about the concept of what is beautiful, what is ugly. It depends on who you are. Uh, and the monsters are due on Maple Street. Turns out to be oh not gosh. what we think it's about. And the episode with uh, I can't remember the title of it. With the Agnes Moorhead as the woman in the farmhouse, oh, where the, who's being terrorized by, by the, the tiny little, little yeah. astronaut. <laughs> and of course, uh, turns out the little tiny astronaut who's menacing her is actually our guy. Or, or the astronauts who crash and, and wind up, God kills the other one, and then he's in Reno, right? right like, finally right. climbs over this dune, and they're not stranded on Mars. He's he's in Nevada. Um, right. and, and he has now, like, sort of robbed himself of his dignity and, and humanity because he thought that's what was at stake. And, and he was wrong. He didn't yes. need to do that. Who is the more human, depending on what scene we're in about Star Galactica? You know, the cyborgs... The Cylons demonstrate a lot of humanity, at least the ones that, that assume human form. And it gets to the point where I I just see them as different kinds of humans, which I'm sure is a big part of the point. And you have all through the show moments where you're agreeing more with Rosalind, moments where you're agreeing more with Adama, where, you know, is it the military that's right here? Is it the, the civilian side that's right? Do I identify with the insurgents or do I identify with the occupiers? It depends on what place we are, what season we're at in the story of Battlestar Galactica. And this is all too very Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. You know, that shifting like, let's flip it upside down. Now, how do you feel? This is why I'm particularly hard on sci-fi or speculative fiction kinds of shows, because the whole point is to remove some of the constraints of more realism-driven storytelling. And then absent those constraints, how are you able to explore ideas in ways that shows set in a more ordinary circumstance can't? And sometimes when a show decides, like, we're going to be on a spaceship and we're going to do all this cool stuff, it's like, oh, cool, now that you've unshackled yourself from all of these aspects that you would have to maintain in a show set in sort of the real world, uh, what are you going to do with that? Right. That's your blank check. Like, make that worth it. So... Tell us an interesting thing. I think one of the really interesting threads in BSG is the lack of gender roles, for example. There's not traditional gender roles on Battlestar Galactica. And it's not a thing. No one's ever like, don't you love how our society has gender equality? Sure do. Like, that's not. But but why couldn't it? Why shouldn't it? And it's just as part of the, the infrastructure of the show. Right. And when I see other shows have these like like I'm so willing to watch stuff that that takes these huge leaps and I don't mind, you know, suspensions of disbelief. What I hate is doing that for no reason. So if we're going to do a sci fi show, say something. If we're going to have a show that's set, you know, I think Walking Dead is an example. I, I thought about it actually a lot watching BSG yesterday because so much of. You know, it is post-apocalyptic. Right. Like, the human species has been largely obliterated. We have a counting—like, we're counting down the number of surviving humans on BSG. It's around 50,000. Right. Um, you have that see, whole horrible moment in the in the in the opening movie where they have to decide who gets to get on the shuttle. Oh yeah, and Baltars. I mean, just like you know, and and we have so many interesting ideas of what is the cost of survival. Can right. you blame the people who are like, you know what? I can't do this, and I'd rather die here with my people than than suffer and survive. Yeah. That doesn't—that's not the trade-off I'm interested in. And there's so many ideas 
in addition to the political ideas that I think the show handles pretty effectively, frankly. Yeah. Uh, just like all this stuff about how you are and who you are and, and when you became that person and what it took and, and how much has this suffering caused you to be more compassionate and how much has this suffering caused you to be more isolated and all these ideas. And, you know, given that we're not constrained by reality, yes, we can really take those ideas much further in more interesting directions. We have so much leeway here. And then... And I think BSG really capitalizes on that in really interesting ways, the way something like The Walking Dead just does not. And science fiction and fantasy on their highest level are ways to get at much deeper, much more basic questions. Whereas most dramas are, are, are dealing with the question of what what is it like to be a human? What is it like to be alive? What does it mean? Science fiction and fantasy at its highest level is asking what does it mean to be human? What does it? What does civilization mean? And and you can only get there by removing some of the familiar support struts that people often lean on. A lot of those, you know, those familiar storytelling tropes and cliches, and and it sets up a whole bunch of challenges that a lot of shows never have to face when you when you really commit to that. And it's like you know, they're basically writing a short story without using the letter E. You know, like you you think like, oh, that's possible. But then, yeah, well, sit down and try to fucking do it and then get back to me. You know, it's really, really, really difficult. And I think that show rose to the challenge. And it's very, very frustrating for me as a science fiction fan. I'm a bit of a sci-fi snob. I don't think that very many things that call themselves science fiction deserve to call themselves science fiction. Because science fiction to me is about ideas. We've used the word ideas a lot during this podcast and I think most of the things that call themselves science fiction aren't really science fiction. They're they're science fiction-flavored action, science fiction-flavored horror or whatever. And a lot of them are just uh, kind of time-wasting things, and they resolve themselves in ways that are exactly what you would think of. One easy example of that is you compare, um, say, 2001 mm-hmm. with uh, the movie Event Horizon. Why would I do that? I don't know. Well, <laughs> go with me here. Okay. Both of those movies are about uh, deep space missions that are on a journey kind of beyond the boundaries of human perception. And and once they make contact with that kind of world beyond what we know, it literally changes them. It physically, psychologically, substantively changes them. But in one movie, we're dealing with these really kind of profound, basic sort of images that are mysterious and open-ended, whereas in Event Horizon, it's like it's basically it's hell. It's hell. That's what it is. It's hell. And when you see the glimpses of hell, it's images of, you know, maggots eating flesh and stuff like that. And I love to look at that movie. It's a beautiful movie. But to me, that movie is not high-level science fiction. It's science fiction-flavored horror with kind of a punitive, you know, weird, like, fundamentalist edge to it. And I see a lot of that kind of stuff, like Walking Dead is an example of that. I don't think Walking Dead engages with the issues that it pretends to engage with nearly as well as its defenders say it does. And and especially when you stack it up against something like Battlestar Galactica or even a kind of a shitty episode of Star Trek, you you see how lacking it is. Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I know we, we uh, rag Are we going to beat up on Walking Dead? The Walking Dead, Dead a lot, but yeah, it's definitely, it's no Star Trek, that's for sure. Yeah. So to our caller, we really appreciate you calling in. I will say that uh, we will continue to recommend people watch all of Battlestar Galactica, even with the knowledge that you might be a little disappointed. I think it's still worth sticking out. Matt? I agree with that, and I would say to the caller, uh, I don't think you have bad taste at all. I think <laughs> yeah. I think your mileage may vary. Yeah. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. 
We'd like to thank Sam Dingman, Sarah Abdurrahman, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. If you like the show, tell your friends and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Margaret Lyons. You can find me on Twitter at Marge in Charge. I'm Matt Zoller Sites. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Sites. Thanks for listening. Hey, this is Brian Koppelman. I host the Slate podcast, The Moment. Each week, I talk to somebody who has excelled in a creative field movies, art, books. I'm talking about people like Salman Rushdie. The war is against pleasure. Amy Schumer. I was already headlining and I didn't, still didn't feel like a comedian. And I asked them how and why they do what they do. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts or at iTunes.com slash The Moment.